feet. <clears throat> You're it. You're it, man. You're it. All right, have a seat, everybody. It's like my children. Everybody's ignoring me. Go have a seat. <laughs> I'm glad you're enjoying each other's company. <clears throat> and isn't it great having Ian? Ian really stretches our boundaries a little bit, doesn't he? I love it. I love it how Ian stretches what kind of what we get used to and comfortable and just pushes us to really reflect more and really think so. We love it when you come, Ian. Great friend of ours. Appreciate it very much. Well, let me pray. We're going to jump into God's Word. Father God, we thank you for just a rich time of being able to worship you and focus on you, God. We're so grateful for that. And God, as we move into focusing in on your word now, God, I pray that your spirit would continue to lead us, to guide us, to teach us, to convict us, to encourage us. We're so grateful for your word that is powerful, Father. So as we talk about today what it really means to be a follower, may you lead us and, and help us to understand that for each individual person May these words resonate because your spirit leads it. In your son's name we pray, amen. All right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to picture with me this a beautiful wedding. Maybe you picture the last one you were at, uh, your wedding maybe, if it, was, if it was beautiful, hopefully it was. Uh, beautiful wedding ceremony, okay? The flowers are all perfectly arranged. The, the bridesmaids are all lined up behind the bride, you know, and they're, and they're matching. What did we used to, what, what, what was it always that everybody wore? The taffeta, whatever that stuff is that you'd never wear again. Uh, but, it's be- but it's beautiful. The hairstyles are looking all wonderful. Groomsmen are all lined up with their matching uh, tuxedos. Both the bride and groom are, yeah, look stunning. It's just, just picture in your head this beautiful scene, okay? There's this glow in the faces of the bride and groom. And as the minister proceeds to begin the ceremony uh, through this, he comes to the part really where everybody's waiting for. You know, we're all waiting for the vows, right? We want to hear these vows that they're going to read, you know? So picture one of those weddings, you know, where maybe the bride and groom have prepared their own vows and they they say them to one another and they exchange them carefully. Um, The minister then turns to the groom and he says this. He says, do you, John? Take Sarah to be your wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, for sick, in sickness and in health, to love and cherish till death do you part. And John looks into the Sarah's moist blue eyes and he says, yeah, pretty much. Sure. Okay, the minister turns and does the same thing, goes to the same thing with Sarah. She says all these things, and she says, what about you? And Sarah answers, I guess. I'll give it a shot. Now, that's absurd, isn't it? That's absolutely absurd. We would never, never see that happen. People would never dream of entering a commitment as important as marriage with such flippancy or such nonchalance. Obviously, one of the hallmarks of a healthy marriage is that both people are fully committed to each other and to making this relationship work. Really, to borrow a term from the world of poker, which I guess we can say that in church, to borrow a term from poker, they both need to be all in. 
They need to be all in to make it work. And on today's passage in Matthew, what we're going to see is when it comes to Jesus, to actually being fully committed to him, to be a believer in Jesus, to be his follower, means that we must be all in. We're going to see today that to truly be a follower of Jesus, there is no neutral ground. There's none. There's none of this neutral or flippant ground at all. The reality is that you are either 100% for him or you are 100% against him. That's pretty radical to say that, I know. But we're going to see that in this passage today. Now, last week, remember, we looked at this disputes that the Pharisees and the religious leaders were having with Jesus. Remember about healing and eating and all the Sabbath and all that stuff. Well, the passage we're going to look at today brings that tension up a big notch, okay? As we're going to see here today, the te- this tension is leading to really Jesus making some of the most profound statements that he ever makes about what it really means to truly be his follower, to be all in. So here's what I want you to do today. I want you to, and would encourage you to open, be open to what the Spirit of God, kind of as Ian was praying, be open to what the Spirit of God might have for you today in thinking about what it means for you to truly be fully committed, to be all in. Because we've got everybody all over the map today. You say, I've been a believer all my life. I'm committed. I lead Bible studies. I'm all in. Well, I have a feeling even for you, this is going to be a bit of a challenge because I know it was for me and what it really means to be all in. So let's just dive right in. We have a lot of verses to cover today, so I want to jump right in. So let's start by looking at this incident. It starts off by involving this demon-possessed man. Let's look at, we're in chapter 12 of Matthew. Let's just look at the first two verses we're going to look at today, 22 and 23. He says this, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? So we see here that a man is brought to Jesus who's demon-possessed. This guy's having a bad day. He's demon-possessed, he's blind, and he can't speak. Bad situation. And Jesus heals him. No problem. Okay, we've been seeing him doing that like crazy. Now the people are obviously amazed, and they begin to actually wonder, Oh my goodness, is this, could this really be the royal ancestor and rightful heir to the throne of David's kingdom? Could this be the promised Messiah? This long away to Messiah? Is this him? They're, just, they're starting to go places that Jesus wants them to go. Then we got the Pharisees, okay? The Pharisees, though, they have a completely different reaction. Look at verse 24. He says, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. <laughs> okay? So the Pharisees, they're not having it. They're right away. They are accusing Jesus of casting out this guy's demons by the power of Beelzebub or the power of Satan. Crazy, huh? Seems kind of crazy. Now, this is cool. This long stretch we're going to look at here, this is all Jesus' response to that. They're saying, oh, he's just doing it. by the, He's casting out demons by the power of Satan. Here's his response to that, okay? And he starts off by using two metaphors to show how absolutely absurd this accusation is. The first one talks about a divided kingdom or a house or a city. Let's look at, look at verses 25 to 28. Now, 
Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. If it, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay, here's what Jesus is essentially saying is, why on earth would Satan be involved in casting out his own? Why, why would he do that? That's nuts. That's like shooting himself in the foot. Why would he divide his forces? Why would he do that? And then he goes on to remind them, if that's the case, if that's what I've really done, what about those of you? Because there were other Pharisees that actually cast out demons. What about you guys? What does that say about you? Are you doing the very same thing? Is it true of you? With that, Jesus, what he does, he presents this far more logical reason. Here's, here's the possibility, okay? What if I'm doing this by the Spirit of God? What if that's how I'm doing it? If that's the case, if I'm doing this by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of heaven is right in front of your face right now. It is right here. It's making its presence felt right now. This is radical. This is radical what he's saying here. So what happens here, this passage really makes it clear, a clear statement that there's a battle going on. This is what Jesus is trying to declare to them. There's a fierce battle going on between two very powerful kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And he goes on to illustrate this, okay? He says, to make sure you understand this, he uses another metaphor. Look at verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So this here, this is a picture of Satan being this strong man, okay? And these things that he possesses, these treasures that maybe some of yours says that, the things that he holds captive, is these are like these people that are held by him. It's like this demon-possessed man or anybody else outside of God's kingdom, that's the people that the strong man holds, okay? And he's saying that really only someone stronger, obviously, than this strong man can come in here and do anything about it. Only he can come in and free those people that are under his possession. Jesus is saying here that in him, he's saying, in me is found the superior power and authority, which I'm now showing you, which he's now demonstrating against Satan. So you see what he's doing? He's trying to open their eyes. Look what's here. Look what is happening. Only someone stronger can do this, and it's happening with me. So now that Jesus has shown, listen, this is crazy. What you've said, that accusation is absurd. Now he goes on to show them, give them two warnings against them disobeying him, against them not believing. You say, okay, you don't believe it's me? Let me give you a couple warnings here. And he gives some, once again, he gives a couple metaphors. And we start by, look at verses 30 and 32. He says this, whoever's not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man 
will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So Jesus just said, listen, your accusation that the power I've used to drive out demons is by Satan, that's, that's crazy. That's absolutely nuts. But now he goes on to say, if you're going to believe, believe that way, he's going to say, first of all, listen, you cannot be neutral when it comes to me. There is no neutrality. There is no middle ground when it comes to me. You are either completely for me or you are completely against me. Either you're with what I'm doing to gather, that whole gathering party talking about, either you're with me and gathering people to myself or you are completely against me doing that. It's being pretty radical, some radical statements here. Because you've got to understand, in our culture, people love to straddle the fence when it comes to Jesus, don't they? So often we think, oh yeah, Jesus is great. Jesus is just all right with me. People think that's, he's fine. Jesus is good. I admire his teaching and what he stands for. What a great guy. But being willing to fully, 100% commit to him, that's a whole nother thing. That's a whole nother thing. I mean, this whole, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, that's a bit extreme. I mean, that's a tough one to swallow. I have talked to people who have said that very thing, that very thing to me. You mean Jesus is, I, it's only through him? Jesus is saying, yeah. There's no neutrality here. I am the way. So people don't. People love to say he's okay. Jesus is just all right. Jesus is saying, that's not possible. It's not possible at all. The alternative is being against him, he says. For example, Jesus says that by attributing his work, by the work of the Spirit that he has done, through his, that he has actually done to Satan, what the Pharisees are doing is committing blasphemy or slander against the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus says, this sin is not forgivable. Okay, we're entering some theologically crazy ground right here, okay? <laughs> you guys have heard of the, the, uh, the unpardonable sin? This is it. This is what Jesus, this is what he's talking about here. So Jesus is really getting very pointed here. He's saying that sin, blasphemy, or slander against the Holy Spirit is unforgivable because it constitutes a stubborn denial of the truth that is revealed by the Holy Spirit. We see here that every sin can be forgiven. Every sin and blasphemy, he says, can be, can be forgiven. I mean, he says here, you can even slander and speak against Jesus and then later repent and you'll be forgiven. But... When you refuse to believe in Jesus in the face of obvious truth, when you harden your heart against what you know is God's work, what you're willing to say, I know that that's God that's doing that, and you're still going to deny it, what Jesus is saying here is you are putting yourself in a position where your heart may possibly never soften to the truth. Wow. That's harsh, isn't it? That's how all in Jesus wants people to be. You're either all in or you are all out. This is a warning. This is a real warning to all who refuse to believe that the truth and the truth about Jesus and willing to remain 
or continue in unbelief. That's what the unpardonable sin is. A willingness to say, I see it, I'm not going to believe it. That's unforgivable. You understand why that's unforgivable. This is like saying, you know, obviously any, God can forgive any sin. God can do whatever he wants to do. But when we stand before him and say, you know what, I saw it, but I'm not gonna, I wasn't going to believe it. What's the, what's the consequence of that? They're huge. So it's this stubborn, digging your heels and unrelenting, say, I'm not going to believe. What you're doing is you're setting yourself up for a heart that gets harder and harder and harder and harder. That's what he's saying here. God can forgive anything, but he also knows that our hearts can get so hard to the truth that we just, there's a point of no return. Difficult, difficult thing. All right, that's the first warning. Second warning comes from verses 33 to 37. Let's look at that. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Jesus is saying here is that the evil words that these Pharisees are saying about him, what it does, it reveals their evil hearts. It reveals everything about who they are, the truth about who they really are. And this is for us today, too. The reality is that our words reveal our heart. They reveal who we really are. And those are the, that's what we're going to be judged for, what's going on and really going on in our heart. Look at Matthew, Matthew 15. We'll get to this later. 15.8 says this, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from where? The heart. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. As we know that's where, and it, this is what defiles a person, he says. Okay? If, you ever, if you're noticing that what is coming out of your mouth, you ever had that happen? You're going, cutting your mouth, man, the things I've been saying lately have not been the most God-honoring things. That, if you've noticed that about yourself, the remedy for change isn't going, you know what, I'm just going to try harder to say nice things. I'm just going to try to guard my mouth. I'm going to try to put my filter on. That's not the answer. The remedy is not trying harder. The answer is asking God to change your heart. It's got to be a heart change. So often we think that becoming a better follower of Jesus is trying harder to not do something and trying harder to do something when really the answer lies in change what's going on inside of here. Change me inside. Sure, there's other things you can try harder to not say things and try to watch what we say. That's all good. But go to the heart. Like they say, go to the heart of the matter. That's what Jesus is saying here. So in all this, this has all been Jesus' response to that one thing that they said to the Pharisees accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. What he's done here is he's painted a picture for them of what a person looks like, the person looks like who does not want to believe, someone who has hardened themselves to who Jesus is. 
someone who Jesus says is definitely not all in. They are all out. All right, let's look at the next section. This next section, we see that the Pharisees, now they're joined by another group. They're joined by another group of religious leaders. They're joined by the scribes. And they begin to press Jesus even more to prove that he is who he is, 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 as he is. They're relentless. These guys are absolutely relentless. And look what they say in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, you know, they just go right over what he just said. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Okay? This has all been great. That's all been good. I know you're not talking about me, about me and us. No, I'm sure you're not talking about us. So show us a sign. Okay? Show us what you're really all about. Like as if all these miracles that Jesus had already performed weren't enough to convince them. They want more. Remember, Jesus has already healed so many people. He's cast out countless amount of demons. I mean, remember we saw him, he cleansed lepers, he calmed the raging storm, he made the lame to walk, he made the blind to see, he even brought, remember he brought that 12-year-old girl back to life after she was dead? This should have been enough to convince them, but it wasn't. They wanted something bigger. They wanted something much more obvious. They wanted, what's the word to use here? A sign. Now, this word sign is more than just some kind of miracle here. They wanted something inexplicable, something that truly beyond comprehension, something huge. I mean, they're probably, it was probably something on par with, they wanted to see something like the parting of the Red Sea kind of thing, or manna coming down from heaven, or this, appropriate to say here, pillar of fire coming, <laughs> coming down. They wanted to see something that, well, wow, that, now that, We have never seen before. That's what they're wanting him to do, okay? But the truth is, the reality is, this still happens today, doesn't it? We hear people, I've heard people say this before, that, you know, if I will believe in Jesus, if he'll just show me a sign, give me something, Jesus, and I will believe. You know, something, you know, heal my wife or my child of this debilitating disease, this heal them of their cancer, then I will believe. We hear the same thing today. Now, on the surface, this sounds kind of legitimate, right? It sounds legitimate. Like, if Jesus would just do that, I'll bet you anything the religious leaders would go, oh, now we're in. He knows that's not the case. Jesus knows, he knows that even if they were to, he were to do something like that, they wouldn't believe. He knows because of their heart. You can say, I will believe in something about God. You can say, I believe this truth about God. But if our heart is hard to God, we won't. And God knows that. That's why it's so important, you young people, when you're young, to start to take all this truth that you've heard, to not ignore it. Have your doubts like we've talked about. That's all good. That's all fine. Have your struggles with it and who you're trying to figure out who you are. That's all that's appropriate. But don't harden yourself to the point where you say, I refuse to believe. Even in the light of all of this, I refuse to believe. Until, unless God does something major. Unless he gets rid of that depression, if when he does that, I'll believe. The anxiety I'm going through, once he gets rid of that, I'll believe. Stop getting bullied, then I'll believe. I want to give you a little wake-up call here. 
God knows your heart. And if your heart is hard to him, you could become the most least anxiety, less depressed, richest, most famous, most, everything you've ever wanted that you think that would help you know God, whatever. Nothing will work. He could even come and stand right in front of you. Nothing will work because of your heart. You see what Jesus is saying here? What it means to be all in or all out is not about how you act. It's about your heart. It's not about how much you stop doing that you shouldn't be doing or do that you should be doing. It's about your heart, and that will impact those things. Okay? These guys wanted a sign. He wasn't going to do it. And it seems like they would, they would have, but Jesus says, forget it. So here's what he does. <laughs> Typical Jesus style. He responds in a very pointed manner. Look what he says in verse 39 and 40. He says, but he answered them. <laughs> Here we go. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus is telling them that the only inexplicable, unexplainable sign that they are going to get is one that was foreshadowed by Jonah being in the belly of a whale for three days. And what was that sign? That sign is his death and his resurrection. That's the sign that you guys are going to get, and that's the sign that every generation after you is going to get. And that is the most amazing sign that could possibly happen. Okay? He says the most amazing, unexplainable proof will be Good Friday and Easter. <laughs> you will need nothing more than that. Good Friday and Easter. And that says it all. No one needs any more than that. That's the most amazing thing that you ever get. And now to add insult to industry, <coughs> insult to injury, Jesus goes on to, now he goes on to compare these guys to the pagan people of old that actually turned to God. Look at, look at how he does this. He just draws them in, okay? okay he said, look at uh, verses 41 and 42. He says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of south, or queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, someone greater than Solomon is here. Okay, so here, Jesus, what he's doing is he's comparing these religious leaders the, pe the people that, or anybody else who's saying, I've seen it, but I'm not going to believe it, to the godless Ninevites. We know the story of that, where Jonah went. And what did it take for them to repent? Just Jonah. Jonah came and preached to them, and even to Jonah's shock and awe, they repented. Blew them absolutely away. He also says, as his queen of Sheba, she traveled, really what she did, she traveled over 1,500 miles to seek out Solomon's wisdom. I mean, she'd heard about it. Remember, the whole world had heard about Solomon's wisdom. She'd heard about it, but she had to see for herself. 
And the story goes that after she had listened to Solomon and toured around and seen all the things that he was able to do, it says that her, his words of wisdom, she heard him, she was overwhelmed. Actually, it says there was no breath left in her. It took her breath away to see the incredible wisdom that God had given him. And she, here's what she says. She proclaims, blessed be the Lord your God. So the wisdom that God had given Solomon proved to this lady, man, God is real. He is the real deal. So now Jesus is painting this picture of judgment day, okay? He's saying that when, on this judgment day, for these religious leaders, they're gonna, it's like they're going to be on trial, okay? You're going to be on trial. And the key witnesses aren't going to be these amazing prophets of the Old Testament. Who they're, who they're going to be? They're going to be these awful Assyrians that believed in God and this pagan female queen who believed in God. They are going to be your judge. They are going to be your judge because you see with Jonah and Solomon, Jesus is saying, listen, something way greater is here than that. Something way more amazing is here than, than Solomon's wisdom or what happened with Jonah. In other words, what he's saying is with way less evidence, the religious leader, these other people came to understand who God was. They repented. These pagan people repented with way less than what you got right now. See what he's doing? He's just building this case higher and higher, bigger and bigger. Now, this is actually a wake-up call. This is a wake-up call to our generation, I believe. Think about our generation. A generation, we have thousands of years of evidence of the claims of Jesus, don't we? We have evidence by means of written truth. Think of all the things that have been written about Jesus in the last 2,000 years. Think about all the countless transformed lives. Right now, I've been really digging into a lot of Dietrich Bonhoeffer lately, and oh my gosh, this guy just absolutely is blowing my mind about a guy who was willing to sacrifice his life for the truth of Jesus. He was basically, you're either all in or you're all out. I encourage you to go read about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Incredible, incredible man of God. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, yeah, listen, you guys have so much I have a feeling if Jesus came right now or stood everywhere, anywhere, he'd say, you guys, you, I can't believe how much evidence you guys have. You guys have so much. So to deny him now, way more costly. Way more costly. Okay, so now Jesus ends his speech with one more warning, okay? Jesus has got one more warning for him, and it includes an analogy. Look at verses 43 to 45. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the, la and the last state of that person is worse than the first, so also it will be with this evil generation. Okay, this analogy, here's what he's doing. He's referring to a person who has heard all these marvelous truths, okay? This could be us today. Heard all the marvelous truths about who Jesus is. Maybe it could be someone who's actually repented. Maybe you went to camp and you prayed a prayer, okay? 
or you're, even if you're just very curious. He's, what he's saying here is you have been liberated from your ignorance about who Jesus is. But he's saying that their, your faith, in this case, is an empty faith. It's like an empty home, okay? It invites intruders. I remember when I was a kid, we had homes that were being destroyed off the 405 freeway. I lived near the freeway to, in order to widen the freeway. I got to tell you, as an adolescent, when homes got boarded up and no one lived there, <laughs> it, was t- it was tempting to want to go in. We did. It was tempting to want to go in there and just mess around, break some windows, do different things like that. That's what he's saying here. When there's no one there, when it's an empty faith, you could say, ex- I'm a Christian. I accepted Jesus. But what he's saying is if your faith is not real, if you're not all in, 100% in, what's going to happen is it's empty faith. And when things come along, you're just going to go, whoa, I don't, I don't think I'm in. I'm not really in. And what he's saying here is things can get really worse for you. The message here is that half-hearted repentance without true commitment will not last. It just won't. You can try as hard as you want to clean up on the outside, but in the inside, he says, you are still empty. Not only are you empty, though, Here's the thing. Here's the warning. Not only are you empty, but you're actually in danger of falling into a spiritual condition worse than what you just were at. Wow. That's harsh. He said, there's being not, not being all in, trying to find neutral ground. It's dangerous. It's deadly for you. He's saying either you're completely for me or you're against me. Your life is completely surrendered to me or you're completely against me. And any attempt at neutral ground is dangerous. It's deadly. So what does it actually look like? What does it actually look like then to be 100%? Jesus, don't leave us dangling. Don't leave us hanging. What does it actually mean to be 100% committed, 100% surrendered to Jesus, to be all in. Well, Jesus actually tells us in this last little paragraph. Let's look at it. Verses 46 to 50. He says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus isn't being disrespectful to his, you know, to his, to his family. That's not what he's doing here. What he's doing is he's using this as a teachable moment to help people to understand what it means to be a part of his family. Okay? being a part of him, this far-reaching bond between us and Jesus that's created when we are completely surrendered to him. What he's saying here is that to be a part of his family, to be completely surrendered to him, to be all in means one thing. You have to do one thing, to do the will of his father. Do the will of his Father. So what's that? 
what's, the, what's this long list? What's this incredibly crazy thing you're going to tell us that he's going to tell us is to do the will of the Father? Well, you know what? It's very well explained. Look at John chapter 16, verse 40. John chapter 16, verse 40 says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and will raise him up on the last day. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it. Check this out. He's in the message. He says, This is what my Father wants, that anyone who sees the Son and trusts who he is and what he does then aligns, him, aligns with him will enter real life, eternal life. My part is to put them on their feet, alive and whole at the completion of time. What's the will of the Father? It's simple. To believe, to follow, to listen to, and to completely rest in Jesus. That is the will of the Father. It means to put Jesus first. Okay, I, I'm coming towards the end, so if you're zoning, come back. Here we go. Ready? Okay. What it means is to put Jesus first in everything in your life, above your ambition, above your performance, above your career, above your money, above your hopes, above your dreams, even above your family. Wow. It means to live out Jesus's teachings. And you want to know some of the, well, you don't want to know where to start? Go back and read the um, Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> Great principles that are like mind-blowing on how to live as Jesus asked us to live. It means to live that out. It means allowing our faith in Jesus to impact everything about how we live. It's to transform our approach to our job, our approach to our friendships, our marriage, our parenting, our sexuality, our finances, everything. Am I getting excited? Do you, do you hear what he's saying it means to be all in? There is no neutral ground, he's saying. You can't be neutral. You just can't. You can't say, oh, finally, I've got to a place where I can just relax with my life, including my spirit. I'm just going to do the spiritual thing. I'm going to be involved in church. I'm going to just really be around church people. I'm going to just, just kind of make it, but make it easy. He's saying, that's not how it works. That's neutral ground. To be all in means to say, Jesus, you're more important than anything, even my church involvement everything. It, my relationship with you dictates every move I make, every friend I have, every conversation I have, everything I decide to do with my family, every move we make, every dollar we spend. That's what he's saying it means to do the will of the Father. That's what it means to be all in. Now, Take a breath. Whew. You see, to be a part of Christ's family, to be completely surrendered to him, means more than saying that you believe. You can say you believe. That's fine. But what it really means to be all in and surrendered, 
to your life is to being surrendered 100% to him. It means giving everything. That's what it means to be all in. Everything. There's no neutral ground. You're all in or all out. So what does that practically look like? And you're thinking, okay, that sounds great. What, is that, what could that practically look like? Well, I'm not going to give you a laundry list of things as I end here. But for some, it means it's time to stop saying you believe in Jesus, but not giving him complete control of every single area of your life. Stop saying, I believe. That's not what he's asking for. Yes, believe. But he's saying, give me everything. Every single thing. It means taking the next step for all of us. It really is a step. We call it a spiritual walk a lot of times because what that means is we're taking steps constantly, surrendering him to him, that area of your life that you've been holding on to. Here's for some of us. I know this one's for me. This one's for me. For some of us, it's simply taking the next step in developing a deeper intimacy with Jesus by making sure I carve out the time to spend more time with him. No more excuses. Oh, I got to get up early. Oh, I've got this going on. Life is hectic right now. Being willing, for me, this is my, well, this is, I'm just telling you mine, taking that next step to go even further. To make that time, if you haven't had having that time, to start having that time, spending time with him so that intimacy grows. For me, it's spending, making that time more focused and making that time more proactive. Okay, what am I really doing with this time? What am I, or am I just checking off a box? That's a good next step. You see, a life fully surrendered to God is a life of taking next steps no matter the cost. Because the truth is that Jesus went all in for us, didn't he? He went all in. One writer I, wrote, I read this week said this. He held nothing back. He bet his life against sin and death, and he won. Our God is an all-in God, and he has called and empower us, empowered us to be all-in people. Wow. Thankfully, he gives us the strength and the power to do that and this community of believers to help us with that. I want to implore you this morning to commit your entire life to Jesus, to either come to him maybe for the first time, maybe you really haven't come to him for the first time in true repentance and belief, accepting him as your Lord and Savior, or for you, maybe by giving those areas of your life that you've been holding on to Maybe it's some bitterness. Maybe it's some control that you have been holding on to. I can promise you, as you take that step, as you move into that step of obedience, man, the results will be nothing short of incredible, life-changing, inexplicable, unexplainable. Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful for your word. I am so thankful that God, that I know, especially for me this week, this passage really, really hit me hard as far as take what it means for me to take the next step in obedience and commitment to you, not out of obligation and not because I'm afraid of you or not because I need to do something to earn more favor from you, but because I, I, you love me so much and I know there's so much more 
But I know that our flesh, I know mine does, totally leans towards and gravitates towards neutrality, toward wanting the easy way. But God, you say true life, life abundant, is found when we are all in. I just want to pray for my friends here. God, I pray that you would nudge them in the area that they can take a step, God, to move forward in being all in, whether that's some, someone here maybe has to make that first-time decision to say, yes, I want to give my life to Christ. I give it my life over because of his death and resurrection. I want that new life. Or maybe it's just taking that small step of obedience to be more intimate with you and spend that time. Whatever it is, God, I want to give every, just give you like 20 seconds, everybody. I want you to spend a few seconds just talking to God, whatever that is, to be all in. Ask.